It's the worst. Phoenix is the worst. Phoenix is the coolest named city and the worst place in the United States. It's not the worst place in the United States, but it's got to be the worst big city in America. Doesn't it have to be? I mean, why? Why is it there? I know it's equidistant and the whole thing and whatever. Good Lord. Just find some fresh water. How hard is that? But this is Eyeball. I'm your host, John Lewis. And today we're joined by Melissa Little, my good friend of many years and the force behind A Photo A Day, A Photo A Day Geek Fest, and past president of the NPPA. Melissa is a Washington, D.C.-based freelance photographer, and she is passionate about building communities and inspiring fellow photographers to be and do better. So we talk about community and criticism. We talk about saying yes. We talk about living in photography 24-7. We talk about the bygone era of the bookstore as the cultural mecca. And we talk about the state of photographic education. I think it's a great way to start any new chapters. What's the most interesting place that led you to in your year of yes? Probably just just a plethora of new clients that year that, that weren't ever on my radar before. Um, some of them were a little bit more commercial based. Some of them were were big companies who said, hey, we want to do day in the life type stuff and behind the scenes type stuff as this video shoot is happening. And weirdly, I got a lot of that the first year. Oh, cool. Um, and that's continued. And that was that was terrific because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't my world before. You know, other than that, like the year of yes sort of led me to a point where I'd worked with a lot of amazing clients that first year out. And thought, okay, maybe this freelance thing isn't isn't so bad. Maybe it can work out. But I realized I hadn't shot for myself that year, and so that pushed me to the second year, which was sort of the year of of the grant, is what it ended up being. Oh, cool, yeah. Um, just as a way to sort of pursue personal projects and passions, because I was so caught up in trying to work and trying to make sure money was coming in, and you know, I was building a client base that first year that kind of forgot to to make pictures for myself. Right. And to define what it is you wanted to put into the world, say, this is what I can do for you. That's something that, I mean, I was the same way. I, I, I'm so not coming from money, not having any money when I started, you know, whatever the negative balance of my account was when I went freelance was, that's what I had. And so I had to make money saying yes from day one. And then you don't think about that the pictures I'm going to make are completely being controlled by the circumstances of the assignment I'm taking. And there's no reason why you can't make great photography on assignment. I mean, you've, you've done just that. But that is, can't be the entire idea of what you do. What kind of work did you work on in, the, in that second year to sort of, and what themes did you have in mind to reframe how people will conceive of, you know, Melissa Little, the photographer? Well, a big part of it was starting to pitch my ideas again. Mm-hmm. I knew how to do that at a newspaper. I didn't know how to, how to do that as a freelancer and sort of how to frame that and sell an idea to a client. So that second year, I learned of something that I probably would have shot as a newspaper photographer and would have had a lot of fun. It was a story in my own backyard in Florida. And I emailed a photo editor at ESPN, pitched this idea of umpire school, laid out how many days I wanted to be there, when the important days were, you know, some ideas I had for for stuff off of the, uh, you know, sort of daily you know, just sort of storytelling coverage of it. Wanted to do a fun portrait series because I was just starting to make portraits. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that we were ever any good at at newspapers because you'd go to pull the lights out of the closet and something would be broken, a cord would be missing. So inevitably you'd be like, can we turn off the lights in here? Let me pull (laughs) you over by the window. I've also only got five minutes because they thought about this last minute. So I was pushing myself to, you know, like, I want to learn how to be a better portrait photographer. I want to learn how to light something. I want to learn how to control a setting and get what I need out of it. And all of that was new territory. So I got to do all of that at umpire school, which was awesome. And ESPN bought in for like eight to 10 days of coverage. It's great. Ran it. It was a really beautiful package online. Did a couple of different, did the portrait series. I think ran maybe 50 portraits from that. Wow. um, Which was having umpires scream their their strike three year out calls at me, <laughs> you know, and it was an awesome experience because it was like, oh, I can do the things I'm interested in. I can still tell these little snippets of 
of daily life and storytelling, but mirror it and make it my own mm-hmm. and, you know, and just kind of go in a new direction with some of the work that I'm doing and, and push myself each time. So that was a, a huge learning curve for me. It was just figuring out how to get my ideas into the world. And it was um, incredibly rewarding. So from there, that led to two fellowships through the International Women's Media Foundation, which is something I'd come across online. And Buffett Foundation gave $10 million to support female journalists. That's great. And they were having a border reporting fellowship that was starting up on the U.S.-Mexico border. I was just moving to Los Angeles at that time. Right. That wasn't the border I ever knew. It wasn't. Right. They weren't issues that we had dealt with in Florida. We had a different immigrant group. We had different, you know, we had wet foot, dry foot. We had, you know, we had all these Caribbean. It's amazing that they're sunsetting then. Or has it already been sunset? I think there's one or two more, but hopefully funding will be renewed. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I was just talking to the executive director last week. Oh, no, I was saying wet foot, dry foot. Oh, oh, oh. That. Yeah. I think, I think that's yeah. now no longer the law of the land. I can't keep track. And yeah. Probably well, not with I this mean, administration. Right, right now with Cuba. Whole, who yeah. knows? Right. That's a whole nother whole we can take Whole thing. <laughs> But it was one of those things where it was like, I want to go tell stories on this border and learn about these issues because it's going to be pertinent to the location I'm living in and the issues that are permeating Los Angeles. And so I did two border reporting fellowships, one in Juarez and one in Nogales. Mm -hmm. And then a reporter that I met on one of those trips ended up securing funding from them and asking if I wanted to go back and finish a few things. Mm -hmm. So we pooled our ideas and... They gave us a grant for three weeks to go back and finish a story we started and two more that we had found that we couldn't get to on those fellowships. It's a, a terrific experience and just learning how to work on that border. It sounds like the best things that newspapers do, the understanding and deep connections of a community, the thinking about geographically, what are the main issues here? You've carried those through the rest of your career. And so you're moving to a new place and you're going to learn about this place instead of, you know, instead of saying, Oh, well, LA is the center of a lot of things. I'm sure I'll be learning about it as I catch as catch can. I think it's such a vital thing that you have not only moved around the country and popped around and now you're back on the East coast, but you're digging into these communities to figure out what stories here. I have not been exposed to in my previous experience as, as a journalist, where are the holes here in my career in terms of my understanding of these issues and then you're writing your own ticket to go and cover these things, which is a fantastic way to do it. So much of what we do is kind of envision, oh, maybe someone should send me to Idaho to do this thing on whatever. And maybe someone will. You know, There's no reason that can't work. But we often don't acknowledge the things happening in our backyard because maybe those seem a little too obvious or easy. But if you're not doing them and no one else is doing them, then they're just, they're just falling by the wayside. So it's cool to hear, you know, a really simple example of how newspaper thinking and the best version of what that is has really enlivened your freelance photography career. I wonder about the ways in which we carry important things forward from our newspaper time. I mean, you had a much longer and much broader career in newspapers. I was just a an intern at various newspapers, at really good newspapers. But as a consumer of news, newspapers have such an important model that I wonder how that's going to be brought forward and through whatever's coming next, because clearly we're at some sort of breaking point or some sort of Phoenix rising from the ashes point. Or I don't, you know, I don't know how the way in which we'll look back and say this was, I just feels like right now there are things happening. And I hope that the best versions of what has worked for hundreds of years, we, we carry forward your sources of inspiration have been, from my perspective, knowing you for a long time, have been so greatly expanded by the way you have interacted with so many different photographers through your work in community building, through first a photo a day, and then it turned to Geek Fest and all the National Press Photographers Association. It, I, I've always really admired the way that you had brought people together. And I've also wondered the cost and like just the hours of lost sleep and everything else i'm sure you also have endured you know how did that begin for you in terms of bringing people together within photography and and where has that sort of taken you it's, it's a, that's a big long question you know where where was the beginning that led you to to, to create photo a day so i graduated 
the University of Florida in summer of 99. We all went our separate ways, you know, pretty close graduating class, uh, Rich Glickstein, Eric Larson, and Allison Waters. And it was just this handful of like really good, really talented, really driven people, Mike Weimer. I mean, just like blast from the past sort of names. And we all went our separate ways. We were all driven and we all wanted to do this. And we, you know, the program didn't weed us out. You know, we kind of stuck, stuck with it. And we all got out that fall and realized that community that we had left behind in college was no longer there. I got my first job late 1999, started down in Fort Lauderdale. And right around that time, a friend I graduated with, his name's Allison Waters, messaged me and said, hey, I'm working at this two-person, tiny little newspaper staff in Palatka, Florida. And there's not even a bookstore in town. I have to drive almost an hour to Gainesville to pick up a Nat Geo or Life magazine or something from a Barnes & Noble. Can we start sending pictures back and forth and, and just sharing pictures again? Because I miss looking at other people's work. I said, yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea. And so we just started batting stuff back and forth for a week. And then I said, hey, why don't we get some people involved that were in our, our class at UF? So I reached out to, to a handful of friends. Hey, guys, you want to start doing this? Like maybe the idea is we can send a photo a day to each other for inspiration, for, for feedback and critique. Probably five or six of us on there by the end of the first week. And then it mushroomed and uh, just sort of blossomed a little bit and reached out to friends at Missouri. And I think you were in that early core group. I was pretty couple, early. A couple months in, yeah. you know. And, yeah, yeah. And we went to Missouri and then we went to Western and, you know, it was all these photo schools that we're See, hearing I, about. I'm sure it. there was like, should we let Western in? I don't know. <laughs> Always that debate. Always <laughs> that debate. But had some good friends in that program and they had heard about it. And, you know, weirdly enough, it's like you go from this amazing bubble of university life and you get out in the real world and you're doing exactly what you want to be doing. You're making pictures. You're getting paid to make pictures. Like you're living the dream at this point sure. at 22 yeah. years old. And you're like, this is it. You know, this is what I want to do. And for a lot of us, we ended up on you know pretty good first papers or great first internships and, and kind of went that route. But a lot of us, I find, were the youngest people on staff by a good decade or so. Mm -hmm. Right. And just had different ideas and ideals than the rest of the staff. My shift wasn't over at 7 p.m. I wanted to go out and have a beer and talk photography and right. look at work and have somebody look at a story that I'm working on that I haven't shown anyone yet. And everyone else at the paper that I was at was in a different place in their life. You know, they had partners and kids and a life outside of newspapers that, you know, 5.01 p.m. they were out the door for. Right. And so I mean, it, newspapers, any creative thing is still a job. And so as we gain all this life stuff, it becomes ever more for some more of a job. Sure. You have to be pushing against that, you know, or at least be cognizant that that's part of the pull. Yeah, it becomes a job and it also becomes important to find that balance. Sure. But at 22, I didn't want that balance. No. Yeah, I was like 100% photography. This is it. Like, I don't I don't want to give another 1% of my life to anything else pulling me in any other direction. A photo a day came along at the right point. Like at that time, there were a good dozen or I don't know, 15, 20 of us online sharing pictures. In the evening, we would jump into an AOL chat room. That's, you know, <laughs> dating myself, but that's... That's where we were at that point where it was like, hey, how can we talk in live time? Like we're all in the same room, like we're all sitting in a bar. Everybody go grab a beer. Like let's meet in this chat room. I'm going to call it, you know, photo geeks, blah, blah, blah. Right. Send out a little message to the, the email list and everybody would jump in there that was available. Hey, what are you working on? Hey, oh, that's cool. Like what, what are you going to do next? And just, right. just pushing each other and getting to know each other and. A year or so of talking to these people online, you know, I felt a lot closer to them than a lot of my my coworkers. Sure, I knew their their motives for photography and their sort of motivations, and, and I got them, and I loved the drive. And so, there's a good friend, David Holloway, who was one of those early A patters, who said, "Hey, why don't we all get together at my house in you know D.C. area around the Fourth of July, and we'll just go over to the mall and take our Holgas and our mini disc recorders, and you know, and just like make some cool stuff." That's see, that's a fantastic phrase. Holgas and mini disc recorders and get wild. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> you know, but it was like I didn't know a lot of these people offline, except for the people I went to college with. 
we were about 12 of us that brought our sleeping bags and pillows and holed up in Holloway's Arlington, Virginia basement and talked photography for two or three days straight and just went out and made pictures when the light was nice and pushed each other. Oh, hey, why don't you do double exposures on this? Or why don't you take a fish tank to this and, you know, get this cool right. split level stuff? And, you know, like we thought we were being really creative and pushing each other. And, oh, you were. You were. You know, I mean, we, I mean. And it was fun. And it was like it was still in photography for all of us was was really fun and really challenging. And there are all these things we hadn't done. And you had this kind of cool, zany group of people that wanted to go do it with you and go mm -hmm. try something. And some of those people today are still my best friends. Sure. You know, like I met an incredible, amazing, driven group of people through that early APAD list that I still count among my my really, really good friends. It's fantastic. I mean, how large did a photo a day get? So it started with two. And at our peak, we were at about 2,500. Wow. So it was absolutely incredible growth. And it was just exponential for a while. It was 99 started? Yeah. I, let's say like January 2000. January 2000. Yeah. And then the first Geek Fest, where are we now in, in Geek Fest annual sort of? We're at number 12? I think last year was 15. 15. Wow. Yeah. So the first one, the first sort of unofficial one in Holloway's basement that will count as Geek Fest 1 was um, July 4th, 2001. Wow. And then you came back to D.C. a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, and it had gone from a basement to having space at Howard University in a beautiful amphitheater. I mean, it was a professional, amazing, and you've been doing this for years. It, it's an incredible event you put on. Coordination of not just yourself, but a lot of people, is, it's remarkable. It's amazing. Just to have been there for a couple of them, it's, it's so cool to see and so cool that for you guys to just pay it forward in the best possible way and just kind of take something which now doesn't exist online in the same way that, you know, lots of other things like AOL chat rooms. I, I don't know. Maybe there is an AOL chat room, especially in like, I don't know, Turkmenistan or something. I think it's such a cool way for photo day to evolve over time because, you know, you guys probably don't want the hundreds of email messages that were being created per day, especially when there's 2,500 people. I mean, I can imagine the volume was pretty out of control. Seeing so much photography for this period of time within this perspective you know, you're going to see these weird themes. Is there anything that sticks out to you looking back on it now that shaped some part of the way you think about photography? I think what it did was it sort of opened my eyes to other photography. You know, I knew what the 20 people on staff in Fort Lauderdale were doing on a daily basis. This gave me a, a broader view of what people first around the country and then around the world were doing. Yeah, the trends came and went. I mean, it was really fun to watch, but it was also like we were in such a huge state of sort of emulation at that point where right. it was kind of like, oh, cool. Like John did this thing at the, you know, the paper that he was interning at. Accidentally. Probably. And yep. um, and it was a really cool, really beautiful mistake. And I want to try this, too. And, you know, we all just kind of pushed each other with, oh, hey, I'm going to I'm going to sort of copy this and I'm going to make it my own and I'm going to do it for my paper. And is that cool? And it was just kind of this understanding in the community, like, yeah, run with it. Mm -hmm. You know, our, our first tagline on our t-shirts that we made said something to the effect of like running the photos that our newspapers won't since right. 2001. <laughs> Cause you know, we started building a website and I would put up a photo a day right. on the front every day as a way to just kind of say like, Hey, this is a really cool picture, you know, and it was before Instagram and Facebook and, and all these social media outlets where you could share imagery was, but it was kind of my way of, of giving back. And it was really cool because, you know, we had people of all different skill levels. We had Rob Finch and Scott Strazante who were winning photographer of the year at that point. And then we had high school kids like Kara Bowen Goldberg and Brian Harkin and people that found photography at 17 and 18 and were introduced to the list that were pushing things with the bands they were shooting and the, you know, the punk scene that they were in and the skateboard culture that, you know, that they grew up with. And so they were contributing to how we all saw the world too. And it was like, oh, that's really cool and raw and gritty. And like, I love, I want to do that. For me, getting to pick a front that thousands of people were seeing every single day and a lot of people set their, you know, browsers to open to as kind of their homepage was like, I'm going to put up 
a great photo if it's a great photo for that person. If they're mm-hmm. trying something new, if they're pushing the envelope, and everybody kind of had different standards. So like maybe what Scott Cersante was doing wasn't necessarily what, you know, this high school kid in Texas was doing. Mm-hmm. But goddamn, he took a risk and took a chance right. and made a killer frame. And I want to applaud that. I want to encourage that. I want that person to log in that day and be like, I got the front of a pad. Like I want to make more pictures like that. Right. And so that was a really, really fun role for me to sort of get to photo edit in that way. Cause it's such a different way than, you know, newspapers photo edit. Right. And I just got to pick pictures that I love that made me kind of sit back and jaw drop and go, wow, that's really fucking cool. Like, yeah. And I, I, I felt the same way when we, we were doing blue eyes back in the day, because care so much about, this version of photography, which is long form essays, you're trying to push it forward. And I ended up spending most of my time writing these really long emails to photographers who had something really good, but need the encouragement and the push to get back out there and do the middle and the end of this thing, because this isn't ready yet. It's really good. You, you have something here, but you have to then put the work in to get it to the place that people like Scott Frizzani understood it had to go. I mean, I remember some of his work vividly that was really slow building work that was just about looking at talk about geography looking at the place we live now and seeing how it's changed really simple but really powerful that once you put it all together it's going to really show their community the good and bad of progress and so yeah i mean i i hear what you're saying about that influence through community i also you know what i really remember about the photo a day era in terms of my own work now in terms of work now i see I want to mention that young photographers now don't realize the power of the bookstore as a the, really the best place to go and see what people were doing. I mean, a good bookstore was like a mecca. I was at Borders or Barnes and Nobles every day, twice a day, mo- you know, multiple times per week, just to see the new things that are coming out because it was so important to like have signs from in the darkness that like. There are people trying to do this thing, and what? And okay, why was this published? And what does this? What does this mean? And how am I going to start th- doing this for myself? And so, the bookstore was huge, and you know, we've replaced that not only Amazon but also social media. But there was a moment in which the bookstore and the and that weird photo book section that had all the like, you know and Ged, but then also this and weird. You know, and every once in a while they have a new photojournalistic book, and you're like, oh man, you know, I hope the plastic gets scuffed up here. They'll have to take it off so we can check it out. But what I remember a lot about the photo day era um, in terms of my own career is a lot of people were photographing verbs there was life happening and they were there to capture that and it's remarkable to me now in that so much of what is published photography is portraiture and certainly something i've been doing most of the time since that there's very little happening it's very sophisticated and, and, and the reasons why this is how photography looks now. But I definitely miss the energy and just the thing happening in real time in front of us that I remember vividly from that era. Yeah, I mean, I think largely it's due to the economics of the industry. We don't sure. have time or money to spend on long form stuff the way we used to. We can't sit there and wait for something to happen. And some of the portraiture that's being done these days is absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and telling. And I certainly don't want to knock portraiture. You know, there are people like yourself that are doing it at such a high level. But in a lot of ways for the publications, it's the easy way out. Sure. You know, it's going to be a one day shoot. (laughs) You know, it's, you know, you're going to block off four hours here, three hours to set up, hopefully an hour if you're lucky to get a subject in and make some really cool frames. Right. The commitment on the part of the publication is a lot less than say sending you out for a month until this moment happens that you've been waiting for. Yeah. In a lot of ways we've, we've put all that extra time into post-production because now because we're shooting this big idea in eight minutes, we're getting it almost there. And then now I'm working with, you know, my amazing retoucher, Zach Vitale to, realize this idea which was literally impossible to do live in camera which drives me crazy i hate i I hate any idea that isn't completely physically impossible to not exist within the camera and so for that to be the plan i'm basically just building 12 hours of time for zach from the beginning 
And it's just a crazy way to do it. Whereas that 12 hours, I used to own that and I'd spend with a subject and get to know them and get comfortable. And, you know, the thing with the, the portrait is you're trying to get to a moment where that subject forgets they're being photographed. Just, just for a moment or just for a second or just for, you know, whatever it is, you make them laugh or you make them confused or something happens where they're a person. They're not a person being photographed. And when you had 12 hours, you could get there. And then you could kind of sit in it when you have eight minutes. It's, it's a bit, it's a song and dance. And, you know, I really find myself sometimes almost like, I feel like I'm in vaudeville. I'm doing this whole razzle dazzle thing. And it's interesting because it makes sense, but we also need to always remember not what we've lost, but what we've decided to leave behind for economic reasons, especially when we go to do our own work and conceive of the ways in which we want to show especially the newest generation of photo editors, what we can do and what we want to do. We have to not just look at what is economically viable. We also have to dig back into what we were moved by in the first place. I also want to mention, in terms of experimentation, which was heavy and wonderful on Photo Day, often, like any other creative pursuit, you know, swinging and missing, but trying. I mean, I don't know how many rolls of film was shot through Holgas in the Photo Day era, but a lot. Um, An economically unsound a lot for, I mean, if you look at it in today's dollars, it'd be impossible. But you always really inspired me by your love of the oddity of the 37th frame of 35 millimeter film. And for those of you who have never loaded a roll of film into a camera, because I'm sure there are people who will listen to this who never have, which isn't the saddest part to me. The saddest part to me is people who don't know the feeling of putting your exposed film on metal reels. That to me, that feeling, the crispness, the bend, like in the dark, that was a big part of that photography for me. Um, I remember getting to, to Missouri when I was a freshman and seeing like, oh, there's, there's six rolling booths where you're going to be, oh, man, that's crazy. Of course, in high school, I would be lucky to have a wet dark room and you had one dark room and that's where you did everything. So for the idea that it was, concurrent rolling booths so you could have a you could have a competition that seemed amazing to me anyway um you had this love for the last frame which was kind of a bonus in a 36 exposure roll of film often there would be a 37th and you turn that into a whole blog and a series where does that love of that last little bit that little bonus time where does that come from it's a great question i just like being surprised photography you know and I felt like so much of what was being done at newspapers at least in my orbit at that point was was very formulaic you know what worked you knew how much time you had on an assignment you knew exactly what the newspaper would settle for what was good enough and there wasn't a whole lot of room for for surprise and for trying new things and for for just sort of pushing pushing your curiosity you know visually or chasing light and just letting it be a really cool feeling that you've captured. And not necessarily a moment, not necessarily a, you know, person doing a thing that's, you know, monumental. Right. But just something that creates a mood. And for me, that was always sort of what that that last little bit was, was it's like, oh, this role's almost done. Let me just knock off, you know. And it's a lot looser and a lot more you know, experimentation happening, at least in my brain at that point. I wanted to encourage that, you know, and I wanted others to encourage that. And I wanted newspapers to support that. But, you know, a lot of times, like I would bring frames like that back in and it was just kind of like, yeah, it's a little weird. I don't really. A little too much space. Readers aren't going to get it. Why'd you cut this person's head off? Like, why'd you frame it like this? It's really dark. I love the cutting of someone's body. That was like the biggest possible offense you could do in a newspaper. Like, that's nice but you see how there's a little part of that finger it's missing oh god i used to have a photo editor that would look at frames where you know it was just an arm pointing in from like the you know left side of the frame and he would literally just jab his finger onto that picture on you know on the the light table and just be like ouch ouch (laughs) and i'd be like what are you doing he's like you cut his arm off you know and it was just like yeah, yeah, but I was trying something, and I responded to well, something. We were trying so hard to layer the living shit out of things, too. I mean, there was those 
different magnet photographers who had like, you know, seven, eight, nine layers. And oh, people- God, I think everybody on iPad went through an Alex Webb phase. You had it's to. like, how can I put this vertical thing in the middle of the frame that divides it into two frames right. and then arms and legs and inner tubes and soccer balls start popping right. in and, and populating this, this negative space? Yeah. Makes your world a little bit bigger when you see stuff like that. It, it does. <laughs> a lot it, was, of it was fantastic. I mean, it was, it was almost biblical. I think it's so cool to have things which are personal to you built into the thing your, is your daily grind. That's how it always felt for me that that 37th frame, 36 was theirs. That 37th, if you were cognizant of it, was almost like your memory of the day. And so a lot of times mine would have been like, whatever the sky looked like outside the assignment. I could look at that later if I, if I did, and you were much better about returning to those and just remember the, the moment, the day. And like, it was capturing time, which is the best case of what, you know, all photographs capture a moment in the most, you know, not to get too esoteric and metaphysical, but that's, that's what it is. It's, it's a fraction of time. But some photographs, especially ones that aren't intentionally trying to do something or please someone else, they fill a time, brings us back to a place more readily. It's almost like building a time machine. And I thought that was one of the coolest things about your 37th frame project, which I think, did that lead directly to, or is that someone else who was inspired by the one roll of film in a camera project where that was being sent around in the country? Was that Chip that was doing Chip that? Yeah. yeah. All these different weird things. Oh, I know. We'll have this camera. We'll just put one roll in and we'll just, everyone will take a single picture. And then we're so used to ripping through film. Now you're going to slow down and there's going to be one. And it's just another way to intensify what's at stake. And now with digital, all these things, you'd have a hard time explaining the way these, some of these things felt. Or maybe, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they would, they would resonate. We're certainly in a different era. I'm excited to have seen this revolution and been a part of it and use these weird shitty cameras along the way because that meant something to me personally in the same way that feeling that bend in the film, you know, in the cellulose meant something. I think for me, what it was, was I don't want to sound like a Luddite here, but there was something really, uh, uh, Eric Larson already beat you to that, uh, <laughs> that title. Something really, really special about not having instant gratification. Mm-hmm. And about just sort of the magic of being in the moment and not second guessing yourself. And I see so many young photographers today. I mean, it was always my role at newspapers to sort of take on the intern as sort of a a mentor mentee relationship. And I would inevitably like put gaff tape over the back of their camera Mm -hmm. because you're not your own best editor, especially when you're in the the moment a lot of times and you see something on a two inch LCD screen. Right. And you're like, ah, that doesn't work. That sucks. And you delete it and then you move on. Wait, they, they were deleting it? A lot it of mid- times. Oh, yeah. Really? Wait, no, photo workshops that I've done, we've had rules where we get on to students if, if they come back and they're missing frames. Right. Because you're not a good self-editor. Right. Especially in the moment if you haven't had that perspective to take a step back and to, to let it breathe a little bit and to understand how it works with the other photos. Right. Sometimes you need this like this really cool transitional image as sort of filler just to kind of pad a story and and let the real moments breathe and kind of transition you from one idea to the next. And a lot of people would see that on the back of a camera and go like, oh, this doesn't have anything to do with the story or this isn't good. Delete. Right. There there was the Demis Demick quote, which is amazing to me. I'm quoting Demis Demick, but he had the uh, you have to build the cup of soup in order to put the pictures in. I think, I, was, I, think, I think it was cup of soup or yeah, I think it was, I think it was soup, soup bowl. It was soup bowl. And he, and he was always, <laughs> I mean, I heard him talk about soup bowls, like, I don't know, a thousand times in my college life, but yeah, he, that was the thing. You're building an essay. It has to live somewhere. You have to build the architecture for where it lives. Now, geographic thinking, this is a senior photo editor at geographic for a number of years, geographic thinking where you're going to have, you know, a tray of slides, which is going to be what the story is. Obviously there's a little more architecture happening than your typical magazine story where you have a lead image, you have a turn page image and you maybe have a quick little, little portrait or something, but it's exactly what you're thinking about. Like I can't imagine deleting things mid shoot. I don't even making sure that the things are working as designed 
I don't look at anything. In fact, I don't like to look at anything unless I'm deeply on deadline until the next day or two days later. Do you think that's a throwback to your film days or is that just a personal inclination? It's two things. One, if I felt like I didn't do enough, I will be inconsolably frustrated for however long it takes. And then two, it's exactly what you're saying. I don't know what I'm looking for until I'm at a ready to a place to actually start looking for it. And the first thing I'll see is like minor mistakes and it will frustrate the whole idea. You know, you have to be ready to receive the gifts in which you might have been anointed, especially those mistakes, which ultimately lead you to a place. Oftentimes those mistakes are just maddening in the moment. It's not until you can look back or have some perspective that you start to see the beauty of where they might lead you, especially when you're shooting with a lot of lights. I only look to make sure all the lights are working, but sometimes finding that they're not, you actually get to a more way more interesting place. Now, is it interesting for the client? Probably not. They're probably not very happy about that light not firing, but I can't imagine on set, and I don't ever edit live. I wanted to track after Photo Day became Geek Fest. You then became the president of the NPPA. You were in that role for what, a couple of years. Two years. Two years, yeah. Yeah, and I'm currently immediate past president. Immediate past president. Just for a few more months. So that's a I'm still on the board. IPP. Yep. Very important. Part of what also led to the change for what a photo day was and why it was built was the the rise of social media and the ability and immediacy of being able to share anything. So how do you view that changeover? The early days of Instagram were exciting. Because a lot of what was being shared was not really portfolio work necessarily. It was more about the life of being a photographer and about the funny, weird things we are confronted with on a daily basis. And it had a bit more organic sort of matter to it. Now it's kind of like just another online depository of your retouched images. But it did have some spirit early on. And I'm not sure if it's better. I liked it better earlier, but it doesn't mean it was better earlier. That changeover, we were talking earlier, people who grew up in the social media era, it has really affected the way they conceive of their work at large. You know, how do you see that? Yeah, I've certainly had conversations with good friends and, and questioned my own motivations behind what it is I post. And it's largely been shaped by the fact that photo editors are using Instagram as a tool to see a little bit outside of a portfolio maybe some behind the scenes, maybe some angles that didn't quite make publication and some some images that, you know, were almost, but that the photographer was really excited about. And they want to get to know a photographer through that instead of a series of greatest hits, which our portfolios are. And I think a lot of us have really carefully curated our Instagram accounts now to be a second portfolio or to be the B-side, you know. And um, it's damaging in a lot of ways, you know. It's maddening because I, I do it and I know I'm aware that I'm doing it and I can't stop doing it. So for me, Instagram stories have become what Instagram used to be. Same here. It's I, personal stuff. It's, you know, just fun. It's random. It's day in the life of me, you know. Well, it, the very fact that they're here than gone allows for the freedom for them to matter. And so, you know, in the same way that the still photograph is not the moving photograph, I think Stories was was really smart. I mean, I guess they, they just straight stole it from Snapchat. It's the only thing I re- reliably put up because I want to interact with people I care about. I want to show things that are I was moved by. I just can't be burdened by it being on this feed forever that people are going to look at as if it's a portfolio. And I don't want these tools to be portfolios. I have a portfolio. And that one is you know, even as updated as it should be also. So... We build these ideas for ourselves and then people use them as intended. But then we get to a place where we're now frustrated with where we got. And not to mention, I mean, as every photographer who's ever lived has also said, the, the idea that is not chronological is so maddening to me that, you know, I, I honestly don't use it, the normal Instagram very much. I only look at stories for the most part. Yeah, you know, same here. And I think what I've seen trending in the last maybe two or three years is how detrimental Instagram can be to 
creativity and to success. And social media companies are smart, man. Like they have factored in this like amazing dopamine hit that is a, a like or a heart or a push notification that somebody saw your work. People, people need that. But what's it doing to creativity? It's, it's almost like a false flag that somebody is saying like, this work is great. You know, whereas like I watch teenagers go through Instagram and they like everything. Right. Like you know? literally like every single one. Literally just double tap, scroll, double and tap, If they scroll. really like it, they comment and say, you're killing it. <laughs> sure. Or a little fire oh, emoji or everywhere. something, you know, yeah. it's lit. Um, it's straight, up the, the it's straight up the Amazon. Say. Yeah. I think that's harmful in a lot of ways. And it's like we were talking about before we started here. That those days of constructive criticism and real feedback are gone in a lot of ways. People only want to hear that you like it. People only want to hear that it's great. And Instagram's not a space to be like, dude, that's cool. But did you think about this? Right. Like you would get piled on in the comments for being like some negative Nancy and like, oh, dude, no, it's a cool photo. As, as someone who spent a lot of time on a photo today getting piled on for being negative, in a couple of notable examples, at least, I wonder about that because if we can't decide what good is, and I'm, you know, photography, creativity, it's subjective and it should be. But if you've been doing this a long time, you can feel when something's important or extremely well executed. And sometimes that means that's the best you could have done in that situation. And professionally, you know, here's a, here's a hat tip because you worked hard to make the best of what you had there. Is it a great photograph? No, it's probably a boring, dumb photograph, but I see your professionalism there and I respect that. Other times it's a, it's a brave photograph, which is not perfect, but it's, it's something exciting. Recently we've, we've just suddenly all gotten back to like the blurry portrait. I was seeing so many blurry portraits in the middle, you know, like a series of of portraits of a famous person. Here's the beautifully lit normal thing. Here's this, here's here's a, here's a wardrobe change. And then here's the blurry portrait. And I, I mean, I always liked blurry portraits. And so I'm I'm kind of into it, but it doesn't service the story. It's just like, oh, now time for the blurry portrait. Like, you know, it's like it's almost like an Instagram filter at this point more than it is a choice. Sure. It's a gimmick. I mean, it's and then we see one person do it and get a thousand likes for it. And we want to do it. Sure. It's, it's the motivation behind social media is like what works, what pleases the crowd. How can I do this? And so, especially right now where there are people who are worried about where things are heading, it feels ever more precious and important and like you have less chances and less opportunities and some people are facing less chances and less opportunities. And so we're holding on tighter and things feel less organic and everything is a little bit more too worked. And we're also, because of all of these things, a little bit less open to criticism. And that's the thing we need most. I mean, maybe maybe with this whole conversation, it's leading back to a photo a day, restarting as of today, but it'll be letters, thousands of letters crossing the country and world. I think back on my career and I love the real opinions I got from my peers and from mentors and from random associated press photographers who were having a bad day and from anyone else. I remember Jean-Francois Leroy looking at my page of slides. This is probably 1999, 2000 maybe. And he said, uh, I don't, I don't care about any of these. They seem to be perfectly fine. They're meaningless. This one I would put on my wall. And it's like, okay, I can build on this. I can move towards something. We're losing that. We have more eyeballs on photography, but none of them care enough to actually engage and talk about photography. And I wonder, this is something I want to do in the podcast. I, I wonder if not part of this is people don't remember the history of photography. We don't know where any of this came from. We're forgetting now that we're surrounded by so many new cool toys that none of it ever mattered. It was only about the most simple of tools to get a connection between a person and a subject in order to filter that through to a separate audience. And somewhere in all of this, we've confused it. And the photographer is the audience and subject or some other weird extrapolation of the whole thing. And I, I hope that young photographers are seeking out real, honest feedback because it's the only way towards growth, I think. Other than being inspired by things you've seen, 
But as you start to fuck up and make mistakes and like and build, you have to bounce it off someone else. And they can't just be clients because they're going to say, yeah, and then never call you because that's their job is to deflect. Yeah, and they also have specific needs. Sure. Yeah, so you might not get the feedback you're looking for if you're not targeting who who you're getting that feedback from. Or, or they also might say the most honest thing, which, which is, I really like that, but I can't hire you for it. I love to be publishing all kinds of photography. I'm not allowed to. This happens a lot, especially if you get to know photographers pretty well. You understand the things they really love of photography. They don't. That's not what they do. And so this is a business and a job. So we have to understand all these parameters. Let's just not lose sight of what is valuable along the way. That's kind of, I guess, where I, I'm now stuck in in my old rapidly declining age. That's a good place to be. But how do you teach the current generation that? Because I don't know if they're teaching that at photo schools. You know? Right. And I, I don't, you've done so much mentorship and you've been an educator, you know, ad hoc and, and formally. Part of this whole thing is the role of the photo school. And I'm not here to, to shit on anyone's education or anything else. But as a annual lecturer to my own quasi alma mater, Missouri, I don't know why those kids are in that classroom because the program largely, and this is not Missouri, this is almost every program, doesn't seem to be invested in trying to, to forge a better understanding and appreciation of where photography and where publication is moving towards. Forever, we had newspapers, which was a reliable source of low-paid jobs. And as those have crumbled and changed and gone online and don't know if they've done a very good job at deciding to play a role in the New, next generation of what publishing is going to look like. And partly it's because they hire professors who haven't worked in media for a really long time. And so they don't have those relationships. They just don't. I worry that the rude awakening I got, and I would maybe you would agree that you got when you got out into the real professional world of photography, is going to be ever more great for these students who are really not going to understand anything about what photography looks like suddenly. And so I don't think going to photo school is a bad idea. I don't know what you would say on that topic, but I think there's a lot more we could be doing to better equip these kids. Yeah, 100%. I think photo school's number one role right now is to create that community and to sort of shepherd those contacts through a larger community of alumni. You know, and I see some schools doing it really well. Like, RITs and the Syracuses of the world are taking their students to New York to do meetings with editors. That's part of their class structure now. That's huge. Kent State in Ohio has an entrepreneurial journalism class that they got a huge grant for where students have to learn to apply for grants to get funding for a project that they work on that semester. But there's money sitting there and the student has to learn how to get that money by being smart, by speaking a language that's not photography huge skill. Very few schools are teaching business classes, very few skill, you know, skills that are actually applicable to the freelance world, which is where everything is moving, are, are being taught these days. And it makes me really scared for a lot of the kids that are coming out today who I get questions from all the time, like, hey, so how do I find editors? How do I send an email or create a newsletter or send a postcard to someone? Right. How do I be professional? It, yeah, you know, it's, it, 100%. I mean, Missouri does have, you know, the, the class I lecture to is a business practices sort of class, um, it, but it's an elective. It's not required. And I'm very proud that they have taken that small step. But you're absolutely right. And it's cool to hear that schools are doing clearly doing more. And RIT has been a leader in that field for a long time because I know they come out of D.C. They have regular interns placed at various media organizations all the time. RIT's had a ton of people go to Michael Wichita at AARP. And you, and same with Syracuse. And that's, that's important because relationships, like any business, are the currency. That's, that's, that's what will grease those wheels to allow you to have the practical experience to learn what this is. Because no school is going to fully prepare anyone for anything. This is not how it works. But more can be done. And I think that Part of what could be done, and maybe this is some of what's happening at RRT in Syracuse and Kent State, is getting more people into the program in a mentor capacity who 
have a little bit more engagement with what's happening today. Who, you know, I'm, I get questions throughout the year from the people I lecture to, and they're asking this, that, and the other. And a lot of them are the questions which you would expect. I think a lot of ancillary groups have started to fill that need, which has been really fun to watch and also frustrating that it's not being taught. You know, the NPPA's mentorship program where we're pairing young photographers with someone specific to what it is their needs are. So, you know, when they're filling out the the form for what they're looking for, maybe it's entry into being a magazine photographer or how do I become a photo editor? Those aren't classes that I got to take at a university. Are there internships? Are there are there ways to learn this path? Women photograph. You know, there's there's groups that are pairing people together to have these conversations privately that should be had in a public space, specifically at a university or a photo school. For us at a photo a day, the thing that I've been most proud about is GeekFest has evolved with photography. So the first one I talked about, it was in D.C. We went out, we made some really cool pictures, sort of a red, white, and blue theme on the 4th of July. We hung out, we made friends, we got to know each other in real life. And There might have been beer drinking. Might have been some beer, might have been some shenanigans, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was a good, good time. But the second one came around, and at that point, I was a good year, year and a half into my first job in Fort Lauderdale. And people said, hey, you want to do this again and make it an annual thing? And at that point, I said, you know what? I have a really, really talented group of coworkers. Why don't I try to get Mike Stalker and Angel Valentine and maybe reach out to this, this girl across the state, Lisa Krantz, who is winning Region 6 Photographer of the Year, who just did this work in Haiti that was absolutely gorgeous, who I've never met and secretly have this girl crush on that I want to get to know her because I want to make pictures like that someday. So I got to call the Naples Daily News newsroom, you know, 1-800 number I found <laughs> online and asked to speak to Lisa Krantz. And invited her over to Fort Lauderdale for a weekend. Like, hey, like, we can't really pay you anything, but like, I can, I can put you up and I can buy you dinner and we can treat you really right. well. And can you just come show your work to like the 20 people that are going to show and up? And Lisa, this being a badass from Tallahassee, said, fuck yeah, I'll do it. I mean, you know, we, we don't hold that against her, but. Well, I mean, you could, but she did only, <laughs> you know, we can't help everything. But Le- yeah. the Leon High School part where I went myself. Go Lions. It's a good part of it, for sure. But it was such a cool thing where it was like going out and making pictures is is fun and is awesome and is great as a group. How else can we evolve this weekend? And so we had three people in a conference room at the newspaper that I was working at show their work on a you know, projector and talk through projects. And that was invaluable. And then the following year, I think we maybe had six people show their work in only one day of going out and making pictures and, you know, shooting to a theme and trying to make a cool little multimedia slideshow. It's just, it's evolved. And then two years ago in Los Angeles, we had one newspaper photographer on our speakers list of about a dozen. Wow. And so to see the way things have changed, like we screened a documentary film there. Mm. We had the filmmaker invited her in to do a Q&A afterwards to talk about Whose Streets, this brilliant documentary on Ferguson mm-hmm. and the year following and the social media push that, you know, that sort of united and ignited the, the activist community in Ferguson. And she tied all of that into this beautiful 90-minute piece that we showed in a movie theater in Los Angeles and then had Savah Fulian sit there on a stool and take questions about we had art directors and creative directors and ad reps come in and speak and do a, a brilliant, you know, sort of moderated panel discussion. Mm-hmm. That's where the industry is going. And we, right. we've tried to evolve with it. So, you know, where it started out with three really brilliant newspaper photographers speaking at the first one we had speakers at to Jay Clendenin being the only newspaper photographer speaking in Los Angeles. And he's doing celebrity portraiture at a level that nobody else at newspapers is doing with consistency and, and excellence. Yeah. Jay's a, he's a, he's a great photographer. So, you know, it's just, it's kind of fun to see how things have evolved because the communities evolved with it. And, you know, this is what's being demanded now is 
We have talks on business. You know, we have talks on contracts. I've invited copyright lawyers in. A good friend Alexis Lambert came to one of the ones in St. Petersburg and just did a Q&A for an hour. Like, what is it you want to know that you're scared to ask about your business? And she just yeah, opened it up. Let me start by saying you're running a business. I always start my lectures to Missouri that way because that's a, it's somehow a scary, sneaky thing that doesn't seem to be well understood. It's fantastic to, to hear and, and to have witnessed the way in which you've, you've expanded the idea of what everyone involved is capable of. And at the same time, you've taken a sledgehammer to the walls and the boxes we have put ourselves in over a period of time. So that, and this is, goes to something I've just recently been talking to my friend Rob about, you know, he's looking ahead and all he's passionate about is creating new things and he does not care at all about what the medium is. And this is a very celebrated veteran photographer of 30 years. And he's just decided the camera was just a tool. It's not my only competency. It's the thing I know best. I'll learn other tools so that. All I care about is putting new things in the world and using them to make new connections with new clients and to tell better stories. Because I think the thing that has stayed very reliable and stable throughout this evolution is that the world is hungry for authentic, honest, open storytelling. And probably we're only getting hungrier, especially as things become more artificial. Every time you see another story about deep fake something or other, Humans are easily capable of being uh, tricked, but there's something undeniable and obviously real about someone doing something true. And I think companies, newspapers, magazines, any, you know, and whatever's next are super hungry for people forging that path ahead and are looking to connect with those people because there are ever more small companies out there who are looking to do something sophisticated. They don't understand how to look for it. They don't understand what it needs to cost, but they're out there and we need to be shepherds to bring them into the flock because. I think a big part of it is just finding new ways to communicate with people, finding ways to reach people in other mediums, especially with GeekFest. I think we all started with photography. We all have this love of storytelling and visual imagery and connecting with the world but it's been really cool to see the forms that that storytelling has taken people that started in photography one of my favorite mediums now is podcasts you know and i get so much out of the podcast i listen to when they're telling me a great story right when it's visual and it's crazy to say something you know coming out of a speaker is visual good podcasts are mm-hmm and I think people that are podcasting really well come from a background of storytelling, whether it was through writing or through photography. The people that are doing it the best are the people that can conjure up that imagery in your brain that can make you feel like you're there, that can describe a scene through you know color and light and mood and put you in that place and connect you with those people. It's a different medium, and it's one of my absolute favorites now. I mean, I've probably subscribed to two or three dozen podcast and then i completely binge on on the ones that i love yes it takes me somewhere new and it puts my brain in a place you know of like learning again and seeing the world again there's something so open and intimate in the same way that a a portrait session can be or a long-term documentary spending time with someone that i don't know what it is but this podcast seemed to break through some wall we put up and people just share something of themselves that's real it is. It's, it, it has a very high school sort of like best friend at summer camp kind of vibe to it. That You kind of get the sense of someone that you wouldn't otherwise get. I mean, certainly not in the four minute television interview on some late night show that's very canned. Sure. I mean, it's lo-fi and it's authentic and it's not overly produced to where it's lost its, its realness. Right. Yet. Hearing comedian perfectly execute the timing of a joke is almost you know it's super exciting in a way just because you're like wow people can talk good so yeah you're right podcasts are are a cool medium and i'm sure there'll be others that we know about but can't envision the way in which really smart brave people will use in some new way and i think it's all ahead of us so 
Uh, it's an exciting time. It's an uncertain time. I mean, I think anyone who's being the least bit fair would probably say, but hopefully together, yet again, I admire the long history of work you've done to really exemplify that word together. We'll get somewhere. The raising tide, not to make a global warming metaphor, will hopefully lift all the boats because there's enough for everybody out there um, creatively, anyone who cares, anyone who's, who's in it. So I, I think it's all ahead. And uh, I've, it's been super awesome talking to you today, Melissa. Thanks for coming on Eyeball. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Melissa for joining us today. You can find much more of her beautiful work at melissalittle.com. That's L-Y-T-T-L-E. Or on Instagram and Twitter at Melissa Little. Connect with Eyeball at Twitter and Instagram. Check out my brother Scott Pryor's amazing music, in addition to the theme music he has written for this show, at scottpryormusic.bandcamp.com. We'll see you next time. And he'll focus twice. He doesn't use a tripod because he likes to keep it spicy. He likes his photo spicy. Yeah, he likes to keep it spicy. This is my dad's podcast, and it's called Eyeball. <laughs> Goodbye, you crazy animals.